Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Who are you going to tell me about today, Karen? Today we learn about James Armistead Lafayette. He was a spy, and this is his story. James was born in the 1700s. He was born into Maffa, a word which is really more apt than slavery because it means Holocaust by enslavement. And he was born into the household of William Armistead in Virginia. There are rumors that James may have been William's biological son, but those have never been confirmed. It was typical for slaves to have the owner's last name, so we can never know for sure. William Armistead was both a patriot and served as state commissary of military supplies. When James volunteered to join the army in 1781 with William's permission, Armistead was stationed to serve under the Marquis de Lafayette, the commander of French forces allied with the American Continental Army. Now, in order to understand William Armistead Lafayette, you have to take some time to understand the man he looked up to the most, and that was the Marquis. Yes, and Lafayette was a really, really interesting character. You would have to do three episodes to cover Lafayette. But just to give you a little bit of background on him, he was born a French aristocrat and born into great wealth, incredible wealth. His father was killed in the Seven Years' War when he was two. His mother and grandfather died when he was 12, leaving him even wealthier, but more acquainted with sorrow. He joined the military at 13. He married at 16. Now, this marriage was an arranged marriage designed to make him even more politically powerful. He heard about the American Revolution, the War of Independence, and he saw in the American struggle the opportunity for avenging France's defeat in the Seven Years' War in which his father had lost his life. So at 19, Lafayette came to America to help the cause. Mm -hmm. He was given a commission as a major general. Shortly after this, George Washington met the 19-year-old Lafayette at a dinner given by several members of Congress. This meeting created a deep and sustaining friendship between the two men. In Washington, Lafayette found his hero, his mentor, and his model of virtue. Didn't he even name his son after Washington? He did. Wow. Yes, in fact, he did. Lafayette's first combat was at the Battle of Brandywine in Pennsylvania. Now, fighting hard despite being wounded in the leg, the young French aristocrat became a patriot in the eyes of the American revolutionaries. A winner spit with Washington's army at Valley Forge, deepened his bond with the colonists, and the enlisted men began to refer to Lafayette as the soldier's friend. Now, Lafayette's assistance to the colonists cannot be overstated. It's safe to say that the Continentals would have been defeated without him and the aid of France. So much so that on July 4th, 1917, U.S. Colonel Charles Stanton visited the tomb of Lafayette and said, Lafayette, we are here to honor the nobleman's assistance during the Revolutionary War and to assure the French people that the people of the United States would aid them in the Great War. Wow. 
Yeah, well, I, would, I would recommend anybody look up Lafayette and just read his life. He's one of the most interesting guys to me in history. Truly, truly. Well, William Armistead's position within the state allowed James to access the front lines of war. James initially served as a forager, a laborer, and a courier. Then a couple of things happened. Lafayette realized the level of potential that James had, and in 1775, the British, under Lord Dunmore in Virginia, declared all indentured servants free if they were able to bear arms for the crown. The declaration only applied to rebel slaves, not loyalists. Because the Marquis was tasked with capturing Benedict Arnold, he felt this declaration opened up the door to a daring possibility for sabotage. 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 Also, as a Virginia native, James knew the back routes without a map or a guide, something the British forces really, really needed. So... Lafayette decided that it would be a natural fit to have James Armistead pose as a runaway slave who was loyal to the British. James, under this guise, gained the confidence of American general-turned-traitor Benedict Arnold and British General Charles Cornwallis. Arnold was so convinced by James that he used him to guide British troops through the local Virginia roads, and it wasn't long before James enjoyed free access to the British headquarters, personally serving Cornwallis, who ironically told him to spy on Lafayette. Because of his race, James was often treated as invisible by the white officers, and they openly discussed their raids in front of him, just ignoring him as if he were irrelevant. James documented the information in written reports, and he would deliver these to American spies, and then he would return to the British headquarters. It was a dangerous tightrope act for Armistead. He supplied Lafayette with information on the British through handwritten notes delivered to other spies, all the while feeding Cornwallis misinformation. It has been written that the dedication, courage, and skill that James showed as a double spy had a lasting impact on the Marquis and shaped his later strident pleas for abolition. In the summer of 1781, General George Washington sent a message to Lafayette asking for specifics on Cornwallis's equipment, personnel, and future strategies. Of the several spies that Lafayette sent to obtain this intelligence, it was James Armistead's reports, dated July 31, 1781, that proved the most valuable. Using James's detailed reports, Washington and Lafayette were able to prevent the British from sending reinforcements to Yorktown. Well, and we, were, we have all heard of Yorktown. Right. And this, this kind of highlights how important spies were and how much they can change the course of history. American intelligence operations tipped the balance in favor of the colonists against the numerical and fighting superiority of the British throughout the war. This was particularly so at the final Battle of Yorktown. I'll give you a brief version here. In the fall of 1781, when Cornwallis, British commander in the South during the American Revolutionary War, retreated to the Yorktown Peninsula in June 1781 to rest and re-equip his army. George Washington was outside New York preparing an assault on that British-held city. So Washington's going to attack New York. Right. But Washington learns of Cornwallis's situation through James and also learned that 34 French battleships are heading for Virginia. 
So all the plans for New York were abandoned, and Washington moved every available soldier to Yorktown. Well, this trapped Cornwallis. So he asked for help from the British fleet in New York. The fleet came down, but they were greatly outnumbered so badly that after two days, they just turned around and returned to New York. Now, this left Cornwallis with no naval support, effectively creating a blockade. While this is going on, a French squadron slipped into the Chesapeake, carrying the French army siege artillery. So now Cornwallis is trapped without artillery to match the French big guns, mm-hmm. and his army just crumbled under the constant bombardment. Three days later, Cornwallis has to surrender. Prime Minister Lord North heard the news. He cried, oh God, it is all over. And after the American Revolution, British officer Major George Beckwith said, Washington did not really outfight us. He simply outspied us. Well, there you go. Right there. (laughs) When Cornwallis showed up at Lafayette's headquarters to surrender, he was astonished to find James, the man he considered to be his personal slave, was already there. He was pretty infuriated by what he considered to be huge betrayal. And, you know, James must have been pretty conflicted. I mean, he was fighting for a country that did not ensure his freedom and betraying a country that promised freedom to those willing to serve. Maybe he knew that they were being used. Maybe he felt that the way the British dangled emancipation in return for risking life was patronizing and he would rather fight for a bigger idea a true vision of equality that he may or may not ever see or experience, but perhaps his great-grandchildren might. As much as we might want to know, the records just aren't there to tell us. We do know that when the war ended, James returned back to his owner, William Armistead. The Emancipation Act of 1783 was only for slave soldiers, and James was considered a slave spy and therefore not eligible for emancipation. In 1784, James, emboldened by his battle success, petitioned Virginia for his freedom. He traveled with William Armistead, who was now a member of the House of Delegates, to Richmond. And while in the state capital, James encountered Lafayette, who was about to leave for his homeland. Lafayette was pretty horrified that James was still in bondage, and he penned a letter in an attempt to help him obtain freedom. Here's what he wrote. This letter is to certify that the bearer, by the name of James, has done essential services to me while I had the honor to command in this state, Lafayette wrote. His intelligence from the enemy's camp were industriously collected and more faithfully delivered. He properly acquitted himself with some important commissions I gave him and appears to me entitled to every reward his situation can admit of. Done under my hand, Richmond, November 21st, 1784, Lafayette. Lafayette was not the only one advocating for James's emancipation. That December, a sickly William Armistead petitioned the General Assembly for James's freedom. And this was officially known as manumission, which is from the Latin for to release control. Armistead's petition, which for some reason was not sent with Lafayette's letter of praise, described the enslaved man's efforts at Yorktown and asked for 
that liberty which is so dear to all mankind, praying that an act may pass for his emancipation. But the petition died in committee, with the citation again that the law freeing slaves for serving in the revolution applied only to soldiers and not to spies. So, in 1786, William Armistead submitted a second, more politically astute petition that included Lafayette's letter of endorsement. And um, in his own remarks, the planter cited James's honest desire to serve this country during the ravages of Lord Cornwallis and closing with a plea that legislature grant James that freedom which he himself has in some degree contributed to establish. The submission also included a plea from James himself asking for compensation for Armistead for the loss of property. You know, it's actually really devastating to think that despite everything he did, he still saw himself as property. Right. The petition and Lafayette's letter were referred to the Committee on Propositions and Grievances, which ordered a bill drafted. The resulting measure unanimously passed the House of Delegates, and eight days later, James Armistead was finally a free man. In gratitude for the support that the Marquis lent to his petition for freedom, James Armistead adopted Lafayette as his last name. James Armistead Lafayette, freed man, slipped into obscurity, making his living farming. He had a wife and at least one son. The 1787 New Kent County Personal Property Tax Book lists Lafayette as owning two horses and three slaves. This sounds very strange. It sounds kind of hypocritical and confusing. But it's important to note that although black freedmen of that era did sometimes own slaves, it was not unusual for property and census recorders to characterize any blacks in a freedman's house, even family members, as slaves. So while the records show that he owned slaves, it's very possible that they were just family members. Right. And, and likely, actually, because there were more children listed in other records. So in 1816, James and his family acquired two tracts that were adjoined to William Armistead's estate, which was very, very strange. There was one parcel of 10 acres and the other was of 30 this is actually really interesting, and it lends a little bit of credence to the rumor that James may have actually been William's biological child. As we mentioned earlier, James Armistead was a defining person for the Marquis, and he inspired Lafayette to fight the injustice of slavery his entire life. Yes, in fact, Lafayette fervently urged President Washington to remove what he called the stain of enslavement from the new nation. Under the traditional English practice of free tenancy, tenant farmers paid low rents and landlords imposed fewer restrictions. And as an experiment whose aim would be to emancipate participating slaves, Lafayette proposed that he and the president each purchase land for slaves to work as free tenants rather as bondsmen. Lafayette hoped that this symbolic gesture would catch on in the United States and the West Indies. It is obvious the impact that James had on Lafayette, and it was an impact that never wavered. In fact, 
Over two decades later, Lafayette was taking his final tour of the country he fought so bravely for. He visited all 24 states. Chuck, can you imagine what that would have been like? I mean, he was there at the birth of the nation, right? Right when they were, they were fighting for their revolution. Yes, and then he went back to France and had the French Revolution. He was actually a hero of two revolutions. Right, right. But he was very, very proud of what happened in America. Right. So when he went back, he saw what the nation that he had worked so hard to help bring to fruition had actually developed into. That had to be just an incredible moment. As the Marquis's carriage traveled into the fields of Yorktown, and remember, this is 43 years later, Lafayette spied a familiar face among the throngs of people there to welcome him. He ordered the carriage to stop, and to the amazement of the celebrants that surrounded him, he approached a senior black farmer who had a knowing smile and eyes that flickered with the familiarity that only brothers in arms can recognize. Lafayette stood there for a moment, his palms resting on James's arms. Their silence shared many memories, a lot of battles and struggles that words could never properly convey. Then, Lafayette folded James into a tight embrace, both men eminently grateful for the other, one for helping to ensure physical freedom, the other for breaking the bonds of a privileged life that did not fully grasp the importance of dignity in the human soul. That embrace took James Armistead Lafayette's life full circle. James died six years later, having lived a full and contented life. James Armistead was a slave, a friend, a forager, a guide, an inspiration, a husband, a father, a free man. And he was a spy. If you are enjoying the show and would like to discuss the spies or gain a little spy intel, join us at the Spy Stories podcast group on Facebook. You can support the show by following us at Spy Stories on Twitter and Instagram. And help us get the word out by sharing the show, be that retweets or shares on Facebook or iTunes reviews. The life of James Armistead Lafayette reminds us, we are capable of much more than we realize. No matter what the circumstances we are born into, we can be more. And we can also inspire others to greatness as well. As Harriet the Spy says, life is a struggle, but a good spy gets in there and fights. And until next week, keep fighting. We'll <laughs>